0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to the Ganatantra podcast on the New Books Network. I am Saryu Natrajan and this is
1: Alok Prasanna Kumar.
0: Today we are joined by Dr. Aparna Chandra, who is an Associate Professor of Law at the National Law School of India University in Bangalore. Aparna researches and writes on constitutional law, human rights, gender and the law, and judicial process reform. Her current research focuses on rights adjudication by courts, gender in the law, and empirical legal studies. We are joined by her to discuss her book, Court on Trial, a data-driven account of the Supreme Court in India, that she has co-written with authors Dr. Sheetal Kalantri and Dr. William H. J. Hubbard. Welcome, Aparna. Thank you. Thanks a lot for having me. Uh, Apart now, we'd like to jump straight into talking about your work but actually maybe before that uh, it would be wonderful to hear from you what got you interested in writing this book in the first place um, and if you could talk about that not just from the perspective of what got you to writing the book itself but your broader academic journey as well. Sure thank you.
2: Um, for the bulk of my academic journey I've done qualitative and
0: doctrinal
2: uh, work not Normative work on um, law and on courts in India, um, but in 2014 or thereabouts, I had an occasion to work with the Law Commission of India, um, where the Law Commission had been tasked with looking at uh, you know causes for delays in trial courts and what might be done about it, and uh, the Law Commission had put together a group of. Uh, experts on this topic, and that included um, my co-author, Cecil Kalantri, and Ted Eisenberg, who was um, one of the pioneers of uh, empirical studies of courts around the world. Um, Both of them were then at Cornell Law School in the US. Uh, And in conversations, um, the conversations that we had uh, around then, we started thinking about doing a data-driven research on the Indian Supreme Court. Because we found very quickly that much of the work that had happened on Indian courts showed us two things. One was that everyone realized that there was some problem with the courts that had to be solved, Um, but the solutions were always impressionistic. They were based on anecdotal evidence. Uh, There wasn't much of data and this is we're talking about 2013 so um it's already 10 years ago and things have changed since then uh, but uh, there wasn't much data about the courts, and so all the policy making that was happening was just based on these impressionistic accounts, uh, generally accounts that were driven by judges. And so then obviously favored their understanding of the system. So um, that's when we got started thinking about the courts and we said, you know, let's take a small bite of this and look at the Supreme Court to begin with. um and then you know we we, we might think about how, what that means for the larger judiciary but that was the impetus that is that's what got us started ted unfortunately passed away um early on in this project and william who was uh, who teaches at uh, the university of chicago law school uh, joined the joined the project at that point and then Since then, the three of us have been working on this topic. We've been gathering data, uh, writing academic pieces, and now we've come out with this book very intentionally with uh, Penguin because uh, the book is, at least the attempt behind the book is uh, for it to be written and accessible to a larger audience, not just to the legal uh, circles.
0: Thank you very much for that, Aparna. And, uh, you know, for our listeners, this is a fascinating book and I'd urge everybody to go pick it up immediately. Um, Aparna, uh, and again, for listeners' context, Aparna and I have known each other for for over two decades now. Um, That's dating our age, Aparna, Mm -hmm. but we've known each other for quite a while. And I know we've talked about this book offline. Um, But I'd love for you to reflect a little bit about the research methodology in the book itself, um, particularly the fact that this is one of the first uh, data-driven books um, and dare I say, even papers. There's a couple of others, I think, by somebody, by Dr. Robinson, and a few others. But I, I don't think there's very much empirical work about the Indian courts uh, in and of itself. Um, so, you know, I, I'd love to understand both from the perspective of what it means to be doing the first kind of work about this um, uh, about the court court system, as well as a little bit about what does a data-driven study of an institution such as the court mean? Um, And I'd love to hear your reflections on what that might mean, uh, both for future studies as well as uh, the methodology itself.
2: Um, Thanks, uh, Salu. Let me answer that in um, two, three different parts. So first, um, doing a data-driven study on the courts is incredibly hard because data about the courts is very difficult to get. there's there have been changes. And in fact, just this last week or 10 days ago, the Supreme Court uh, has put its own data on the national judicial data grid, uh, which wasn't obviously available to us uh, when we uh, when we commenced this work. We didn't even have a good you know, website where we could get information about uh, cases of the court uh, when, when we started this work. So what we had to do is to construct our data sets, not just analyze data that was out there, Um, And we did that by assembling a team of students at NLU Delhi um, who coded and hand coded, um, you know, around 6,000 odd or judgments around 66 parameters. And that's how we got our first initial data set. By then we had the tools and we had the knowledge, we were learning alongside, we had the knowledge to be able to sort of scrape some data data of about a million cases from the Supreme Court website and then use that data also to inform our, our, our studies. So just to say that just the data gathering exercise is incredibly difficult because this is not such a well-developed field I can say a bit more about, you know, that uh, that being also a problem of le- legal academia in India, because uh, it's so insular. We are not taught, you know, data science uh, and, you know, data scientists uh, very rarely work with um, with legal institutions, particularly courts. So, I mean, there's a there's a larger ecosystem within which this kind of a research is um, is located but it does point to some of the problems within the judicial system one is the lack of transparency uh in its functioning so we know a lot about some aspects of the courts very high profile cases uh courts are public facing institutions so we get to know a lot about what happens um you know in very high profile cases now with the advent of social media and you know and live streaming we know uh something about what's happening in the day-to-day working of courts but generally in terms of what is it that they're doing overall what does the everyday of the court look like what is it that hides behind the surface of the high-profile cases that's something that you don't really have a visibility on and empirical studies can do something it can't do everything but it can do something to shed a light on patterns um and not just uh, you know again have anecdotal examples by which we frame our understanding of the courts so one way in which um we buck the somewhat pessimistic trend about the working of the courts in in, in this work is uh, there has been a lot of literature in recent times to say that the court, which in the late 1970s, early 1980s, Uh, try to reinvent itself as a people's court um, and provide broader access and, you know, formulate its own sort of approach to deciding cases in a more people centric way uh, changed course in the 1990s and early 2000s. And, you know, Penjapakshi very famously calls it the structural adjustment of judicial review and, um, and uh, started favoring the, um, what is the opposite of the underdog? The, overdog uh, the overlord um, you know as opposed to the underdog so on and so forth right and there are many 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 such accounts um one thing that we find in our data by by again putting in an empirical lens and looking at this large data set um one thing that becomes clear is that the court- quote is still grappling with that question of providing access to the underdog, um, and it's but its focus is on access, right? On being taking on more and more matters from people who might be bringing weaker cases, but wants to give them representation in the court. We'll hear you out, um, even if you're bringing weaker cases. But obviously, the court has to decide on the merits of the of of the case, and so then uh, it's not often that that they might win. But if you, if you look only at the win rates, right? Who is winning? Who is losing? You might get the picture that you know the court is is not is is uh not aligned with the interests of the criminal defendant uh, the 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 person who's seeking to enforce their constitutional rights or uh, the person who's who's bringing um, claims against big corporations but if you look at uh, you know who's getting access? You'll see that these very groups that might otherwise be losing out in the end are the ones who who's, you know who even when they're bringing weaker cases are getting access to the court. That's what that might be reflected in the uh, in in the win and loss rates towards the end. So just to say that therefore uh, data can shed new light uh, on what it is that we are seeing. That said, um, data can't obviously uh, tell you everything about what's happening uh, behind the courts. There is a Sense in which, definitely in the legal community, uh, but I know also in policy making circles more broadly, there is a sense that um, numbers are objective and statistics is objective. Uh, but obviously, we know that that's not the case because data also depends on interpreting. I mean, any story that we tell on the basis of data depends on our interpretation of that data. The questions that we seek to see. The questions that we ask, the questions that we can actually observe because they're part of the written record, um, the conclusions that we draw uh, from those are all choices that we're making or, you know, we're being constrained by. And... uh, that means that it is it is a political enterprise. Data is political, and if data is political, and any any data based account is an interpretation of the working of uh, the courts, then it should be understood in 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 that uh, sense. There are many important questions about the court that this book does not answer, and the data that we have, um, the, the data that we have cannot uh, answer, um, such as how good of a job is the court doing in enforcing constitutional limits generally right um those are those are that, that that depends on a normative assessment and a doctrinal assessment of what it is that the courts are doing that's not something that we are doing and they, those are perhaps even more important questions than the ones that we are asking but our focus here is to see whether the court has the institutional capacity to enforce constitutional limits by looking at how much time does it spend, for example, in in, uh, looking at constitutional cases, how much of its case stockade is actually about what is supposed to be its main task of enforcing fundamental rights. Um, Those questions we can ask. So we can ask questions about capacity. We can ask questions about uh, the institutional processes, Um, but not so much through this kind of a study that we have done. I'm sure there are other empirical studies that could answer some of those more um, interesting normative questions. But through this data-driven account, we're not attempting to answer uh, whether it actually ends up uh, in the kind of judgments that it gives, whether it ends up um, doing a good job or not.
0: Thank you for that. I mean, I think absolutely resonate all of what you're saying in terms of the fact that the the way in which data is gathered, even imagined and structured, and then interpreted, uh, it necessarily aligns very fundamental questions about the way the court functions. Uh, But, you know, given the limitations and the constraints of what data means, uh, are there aspects of the way in which the Supreme Court uh, both collects data as well as organizes and makes it available? um, uh, are there elements of it that can be improved? Or rather, you know, if I'd asked you this question, like what wishfully, what would you like for the Supreme Court? What or what kind of data would you like to see uh, about our court system? Um, so let me tell you what the Supreme Court puts out. Every month, the
2: Supreme Court puts out a one pager where it tells you how many cases are pending admission hearings in the Supreme Court. How many cases of the ones that have been admitted, how many cases are pending regular hearings? And how many constitution bench cases, this is constitution bench is a bench of five judges or more, how many constitution bench cases are pending before the Supreme Court? Right, A one-page note with these three data points. Um, Once a year, in its annual report, the court puts out some data about institutions and disposals of, uh, from roughly from 1950 onwards. Um, but that gives you just the aggregate big picture number. That's the data the court is putting out. That's it um, for, for, the, for the most part. Uh, definitely in terms of its functioning and its, its working in terms of its output, that's the data that the court is putting out. What it has started doing with the national judicial data grade um, which is the exciting bit is to give you a little bit more granular detail, but it hasn't provided the kind of disaggregated data yet on the national judicial data grid for the Supreme Court. It's available for the lower courts, not so much for the Supreme Court. Um, national judicial, But on the national judicial data grid, the court's data is a little bit more granular. It tells you something about how long cases have been pending, et cetera, et cetera, but uh, it is still at an aggregate form. To be able to do any kind of a rigorous study of, of courts, uh, one would need this aggregated data. And that kind of data is not available. It's also possibly not within the remit of the court to be to know what kind of you know detailed data it, it should provide. But if there are researchers who are interested in um, studying these matters, um, it should be possible for them to be able to get that data from the courts, for the court to have the systems and the agility at the back end to be able to generate that kind of data in a disaggregated form that it can allow people to to research on. And to the best of my knowledge, again, I might be mistaken because I don't know um, uh, what's happening at the back end but uh, to the best of my knowledge that is not something that is still accessible to the public um uh and so so that is the kind of data one would want disaggregated case level data that one could run um uh, their their analysis on or the ability to run apis you know that Court data is very sensitive data. So there'd be all sorts of data protection that would have to be, you know, uh, would have to be put in. But beyond that, to put in uh, these kinds of um, uh, methods and mechanisms for people who want to study courts to be able to do that.
1: Uh, Thanks for that, uh, Parnan. My sort of queries on this come from both my uh, experience as a Supreme Court lawyer for about four and a half years or so and also struggling with some of the same questions that uh, you have addressed in the book in the context of Supreme Court data. And one thing which even today, 15 years after I initially practiced in the Supreme Court, I have to consciously tell people, the Supreme Court is not the institution that you think it is, in terms of what they read about it, right? And I think what your data very starkly presents is that in people's heads, it's a court which hears big constitutional cases, major PILs and maybe some other small cases when the reality that your data shows is something completely different. Maybe you could talk us to a little bit about uh, what that is.
2: Right. Let me just, I mean, take you back to 1950 and, you know, when the constitution is being framed and the conversations that are taking place about the court. So before um, the constitution comes in, the highest court of appeal is the Privy Council. And uh, while... You now under the 1935 Act, there's a federal court. Um, the understanding is that it's a relatively weak court, um, and the Privy Council is where, which is the highest court of appeal, the last resort. Um, there had been a demand for you know having a Supreme Court or a federal court which would ha- be the final court of appeal in India as part of some conversations around the freedom struggle. So when um, the Constitution is being debated, the idea is that we'll have this kind of a last court, we should have all the powers of the Privy Council, because why should our court be any less than the uh, Privy Council? And also to see that, you know, our uh, Supreme Court should have a lot of prestige, because Other than that, you know, the Supreme Court and the Federal Court were new courts. The high court, some of the established high courts were the older courts. And uh, there was a sense that those are the most prestigious courts. In fact, one of the reasons why there's an anomalous situation where a high court judge retires at uh, 62 and a Supreme Court judge retires at uh, 65. And the reason why that distinction was kept was also because... um, we wanted uh, high court judges to actually come to the Supreme Court. Um, so just to therefore give you a sense to say that there was uh, this idea that we need to create a very robust court, that people will come want to come to the court even as, as, as judges, and it will have all the dignity of the highest court of the land. So what they did was they gave it one um, the, and what what Dr. Mehta called the, the you know the provision that was the soul of the Constitution, the ability for any person to move the Supreme Court directly for the enforcement of fundamental rights. And that's under Article Thirty Two of the Constitution that's protected as a fundamental right. And the idea is just the symbolic value that fundamental rights are so important that you can directly approach the highest court of the land to enforce these rights, this was provided. And this was seen as very central to the constitutional project. Other than that, many constitutional disputes could go directly to the Supreme Court. Uh, Other than that though, All matters were supposed to go to high courts, generally rest in high courts, and in exceptional circumstances, where either when the high courts felt that, you know, there was something very important happening here, there was some general question or some important questions of interpretation that required the Supreme Court to address these matters, the the high courts could send a certificate to the Supreme Court to say, um, you know, why don't you decide this matter? And that is how appeals would go to the Supreme Court. Uh, As an exceptional matter, just because the Privy Council also had this power, as an exceptional, extraordinary matter, they said, you know, the Privy Council on its own can also entertain appeals, right? You could go to the Privy Council and ask Privy Council to... To, you know, even if the high courts haven't sent the matter to the Privy Council, you could still ask the Privy Council. Privy Council might choose to take it up on itself. It's a very exceptional uh, power, but the Privy Council had it. And so the argument was if the Privy Council has it, our Supreme Court should have it too, but seen completely as an exceptional, residuary sort of category this is the uh, how the uh, role of the court is imagined as broadly a constitutional court deciding constitutional disputes and fundamental right cases some appellate power um, and exceptionally uh, the ability to entertain uh, mat- uh, appeals on its own look at the reality today the bulk the overwhelming bulk, bulk about 90% of the work of the court is looking at these special that what was supposed to be that residuary category where uh, someone is filing an appeal from a decision of the high court without asking the high court to certify the matter to the supreme court for appeal that's the bulk of what it is that the court is doing today those are the slp matters special leave to appeal you ask the supreme court and the supreme court very importantly at its discretion decides whether it's going to entertain that matter or not constitutional matters are very small part of what it is that the court does. Now, these are the most, very often, not always, but very often, these are the most high-profile cases. So we hear a lot about them, right? But And it, it appears, for example, PILs. PILs are something that are eye-catching. We hear a lot about them. But PILs are less than 1% of the court's docket, right they might take more time of of the court but just in terms of its case uh, docket it's a minuscule amount of cases that actually um PILs. So just to therefore give you a sense that the public perception of what it is that this court does—it entertains PILs, it uh, uh, you know it disciplines constitutional authorities who are uh, not doing the line. This is where people go to enforce fundamental rights, and it will strike down a legislation, or it will give us you know uh, justice uh, in terms of protecting our fundamental rights, etc., etc. Is a very very small part, and an incredibly small part of what it is that the court does. The bulk of what the court do, does today is to decide appeals in ordinary cases now it, it might be that the lower courts are so dysfunctional that all of these matters have to go to the uh, supreme court but we find no evidence of that right um there are uh, about 60000 petitions that are made to the supreme court every year for um, uh, on you know for slps um and the Supreme Court dismisses seven out of eight of them. So uh, it's one out of eight that it actually admits. When it admits those, that one out of eight cases, uh, it um, uh, tends to reverse the lower courts only about 55-56% of the time. At the very least, it means the Supreme Court has a very bad filtering mechanism of what is it that it is actually accepting and taking on um, when it is um, uh, when it is choosing to take on these cases. And one reason for that uh, is that the Supreme Court has consistently refused to have any clear guidelines on what matters it will take up under this SLP jurisdiction. This is just depends on you know, who the judge is. In fact, There have been attempts in the past on the judicial side for the Supreme Court to, you know, set up up guidelines, and the court has itself uh, refused to set up any guidelines saying that, you know, judges are the best judges of whether a matter requires um, to be taken up or not. And other very good work has suggested that... You know, if you look at the bulk of these cases, all that the Supreme Court is doing is just taking another look at the case. It's not as if it involves any major issue. It is not as if it's not even it's neither citing a case or in many cases, not even citing a legal provision. Things that should generally lie with the lower courts or the high court for everything. There is now an appeal to the uh, Supreme Court and that creates a very topsy turvy kind of a system. Right? It's a very top-heavy system where um, the, the Supreme Court is interfering and taking on so many matters. That that means that its ability to provide a very clear, consistent jurisprudence is also being impacted. So just to, just to cite this one example and, and, then, I'll, and then I'll stop, uh, there's this um, very interesting paper by Yoon uh, Green and uh, I'm forgetting their uh, co-author, a third person, who studied Supreme Court judgments, and they say that uh, the bulk of the Supreme Court judgments don't ever cite any other case, and in turn, are never cited by any other case, right? which just means that they're not dealing with questions of law. They're doing what someone suggested to us was a case-by-case rescue, right? Uh, In every case, looking at whether justice has been done according to their sensibilities on the facts of the case. So it's like a, it's a fact court, right? It's, it's an error correcting quote on on questions of fact rather than uh, looking at broader principles of law. And that gets to the fundamental question that our book sort of keeps grappling with what is the role of the Supreme Court, right? Is it an appellate court? Is it primarily an appellate court? Um, And primarily a first appeals court, which is grappling with questions of fact? Or is it a court that is primarily a court to ensure that constitutional limits are obeyed and constitutional mandates are obeyed? And if it is the latter, then, to what extent is this first, this appellate court role, impinging upon its ability, just in terms of time and, time and resources, mm-hmm. impinging upon its ability to carry out its constitutional function?
1: No, and that's, that's a very valid point. But uh, I, I, I sort of, on that note, I had something else, which is, uh, I suppose, your book deals with a little bit, which is, uh, and in the criminal side also, we see that the Supreme Court has become the court for bail. Right, which which sounds utterly absurd. There are two layers below where you can go to go for bail, but by far the largest bulk of cases to the Supreme Court on the criminal side, forget the civil side, seems to be bail. I mean, I can understand death penalty cases coming to the Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. I can understand serious criminal cases coming to the Supreme Court, which involve a lot of you know facts and so on. But bail to me seems and is there a deeper pathology at work over here? Is there something fundamentally going wrong, not just with the Supreme Court, perhaps down the line with the judiciary on this?
2: Um, on bail again, uh, just to say that you know we, we looked at bail cases again. Bail cases are your classic case by case rescue cases, right? They cite no precedent. They cite uh, they never cited in turn. The only question is whether in The facts of that case bill should have been granted or not. And um, if you had a court on top, you know, whatever be the. Decision of the Supreme Court, if you had another layer of courts on top, they might have come to a completely different conclusion. So it's not as if they're making, again, uh, they're clarifying the standards. So two pathologies that I want to discuss here, right? One is more a political economy question, but the second is very much uh, the institutional ability question. The institutional ability question is this. What is the court focused on? Instead of focusing on laying down clear norms on when bail is to be granted, the court is focused on looking at whether bail should be granted in that individual case, in the individual facts of that case. right? And so you end up in a situation where there's no clarity down the line uh, for high courts and for low courts on when bail should be granted. Because the Supreme Court also is not just, we, our court does not sit on bonk in the sense that they don't all sit together. They're sitting in small um, uh, benches that, what, 15, 16 Supreme Courts of India rather than one single Supreme Court. And so um, what is ending up uh, happening is that different courts that are looking at uh, bail uh, issues might be giving you completely contradictory signals on when bail should be granted or not. That's creating its own sort of, you know, confusion and uh, contradiction that is leading to more, it's a vicious cycle, it's leading to more uh, litigation on that issue. A second thing, which is the political economy question is like, um, you know, just as if you if you create a private school system, uh, which the elite can uh, afford or those who have resources can afford, uh, there might be very little incentive to have a very robust public schooling system. Likewise, for the healthcare uh, system, and we've seen those kind of institutional rots in our uh, public healthcare, public uh, education, and my sense is that something very similar happening to the law courts, right? Uh, There's a much longer constitutional history or colonial history, rather, of why trial courts were seen as, uh, you know, um, not as robust or uh, even as privileged spaces as compared to high courts Uh, but uh, even otherwise today the courts have created so many bypass mechanisms so that you don't have to if you have the resources you don't have to deal with trial courts you can directly go to the high court in in criminal law matters under 482 of crpc and then go to the supreme court and get or uh, matters heard and not have to deal with the with the trial courts. And what would happen if the Supreme Court were to say that, no, you know, you have to deal with the high courts and you have to deal with the trial courts? We might see a better, more robust trial court system uh, than, than we currently have. So I think there's a political economy question and an institutional ability question. But all of it is... Um, I mean, just on that question of bail, you could look at the issue of bail and sort of discuss a whole range of pathologies of of the way our Supreme Court functions just by looking at that one issue.
1: No, that, that's great. And I think you've brought out those two aspects very clearly. And uh, that's a very important thing, which if we had more time, we could spend another two hours talking about yeah. <laughs> that alone. Uh, but you mentioned this point about now the Supreme Court being 34 judges in strength, at least. Uh, which I think would have been unimaginable to the framers of our constitution. <laughs> they would have been appalled at the fact for 34 judge Supreme court, but that also gives in some ways an opportunity for diversity in the court. Unfortunately, and as your book has pointed out building on the work of Gadboy and others, we haven't really met this criteria. There is, I think as far as I remember only geographical diversity in terms of judges tend to come from all parts of the country. Beyond that, Whether it is gender, whether it is caste, whether it is tribal status or, you know, on most other criteria, the Supreme Court seems to fail in this particular way. And i will say fail specifically because judges effectively choose other judges. The president may at the end of the day sign on the Mm -hmm. dotted line and the government may process it. But, you know, it is the judiciary at the end of the day choosing judges. Uh, What do you sort of attribute this to? Do you sort of look at it in more detail in the book and perhaps for our listeners talk about what is causing some of this?
2: Right. Um. Just let me just begin with something that you began with on, um, uh, you know, the framers wouldn't have imagined it. In fact, you know, one of the things when they were talking about uh, the appellate docket of the Supreme Court, uh, some some of the framers did warn that, you know, if you have a very expansive appellate docket and the Supreme Court ends up becoming the court of last resort as a regular matter, then you would keep having to increase the number of uh, judges. So it's a very, you know, forward-looking remarks because that's precisely where we ended up. We don't have 34 judges today because the court is faced with so many constitutional matters. We have 34 judges today because of the appellate function. So some of the pathologies of the system of, you know, different courts speaking in different voices, not having a cogent uh, um, jurisprudence, so on and so forth, all of that is coming from um, that Expansive appellate docket. Just, just to flag one other concern that this raises: um, if at, in um, 1950 we have eight judges, including the chief justice. Um, and the idea is that they're sitting, um, you know, in large benches, Some, some many of the times they're sitting, all of them are sitting together, or at least a five or six of them sitting on one large bench to deal with important uh, matters, two or three of them sitting in smaller benches to deal with your regular appeals, so on and so forth. Um, what that also meant was that uh, there was the Chief Justice of India had very little role in deciding who would get uh, to sit on which bench. I mean, you either effectively sat on a constitution bench or you sat on an appeals bench. Um, What has happened over time though, as more and more matters have been coming to the court, the court has expanded. Judges are sitting in smaller and smaller benches the quality of reasoning of the court has gone down because you don't have the benefit of a large number of judges thinking about a particular question. The, um, uh, what is called the polyvocality of the court, the court speaking in different voices has gone up. Uh, but also the chief justice's power and discretion in deciding which judge will hear which matter has also gone up. And we've seen in the last few years that play out with the whole um you know, press conference that the uh, justices Gogo Ilokur, and uh, and Kurin Joseph did. So, I mean, there are all these pathologies that come in because of that expansion. Now, one of the good, two good things about an expanded court that doesn't sit on bunk is that it is more difficult to capture, right? Uh, in the We've seen the you know, cons- concerns about capture of the court play out in the U.S., for example, where you have a nine-judge bench. So it's not to say that it's all bad. There is, There are some positives to this. The second, as you mentioned, is diversity. Um, The court does pretty poorly on questions around diversity. The only other area where traditionally they've performed well on diversity is religion. But that also is in the last few years uh, has been uh, declining. Um Where... What is the source of this? If you look at the appointments process, the appointments process is a very insular process. It is a process uh, where you have a bunch of judges, the senior most judges, who drive the uh drive the appointments um system so whoever they are familiar with who are the people they know are the ones who are more likely to um get uh promoted and get get appointed or get promoted to the to the supreme court itself and what we find is um you know i mean this is something that uh would be very uh, familiar to people who study gender disparities in organizations, for example, that um, when we looked at high court judges, we looked at chief justices of high courts, that is the pool from which the Supreme Court overwhelmingly draws judges to the Supreme Court. But we saw that to become a, a chief justice of a high court, a woman judge in a high court has to spend longer uh, than their male counterparts, given so it's a it's about a roughly around a one year difference, right? But that one year means quite a lot in the in the judiciary because uh, it's such a seniority driven. Uh, uh, you know system so that is one huge thing second is that they need to be judges of m- many more high courts on average before they get taken to the supreme court as compared to uh, male judges and that would again indicate that uh, you know again you have to try twice as hard to do half as half as well you know that 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 kind of a uh, problem but ultimately it is a question of lack of channels of accountability. There are no standards by virtue of which, um, you know, judges are being evaluated for whether they are suitable for appointment or not. We saw that with the appointment of Victoria Gauri this year, um, where the chief justice seemed to be, completely unaware about the kind of hate speeches that she had made which were available on her own social media so one would think what are the kind of background check that's happening or oh, just you know like a basic cursory let me go google her up kind of uh uh you know uh anything any any kind of check that's happening um and let alone what they're what their jurisprudence might be like, et cetera, et cetera. So there is very little, you know, by way of standards of why is it that someone is being picked up and someone is not being picked up. Second is there is very little public facing information about why is it that judges are deciding the way that they are deciding. And this it's, it's this really weird thing where j- judges particularly have internalized this idea that if you have more transparency in the appointments process, people will not want to become judges. And the world over, people become judges through very public appointments processes. Um, South Africa is a good example uh, where internal deliberations, I mean, there's a fantastic judgment out of there which says that, you know, you have a duty of candor and you have to speak in you know, a uh, with candor even in these internal deliberations but that does not mean that you know you cannot put these internal deliberations out uh, because that is what your job is i mean you know um so just to say that therefore uh, we've landed up in a very opaque unaccountable system where the most privileged folks who obviously also come from the most privileged circumstances get to decide with very little accountability who are the people who will succeed them and I mean, it's a it's a system built for disaster. Uh, one would one would think again. It's a question of institutional capacity. If you're designing a system which is uh, which has the capacity to be more diverse, this is not the system you would design.
1: Yeah, and and I think uh, you made the point about the advocates who basically become mm. judges of the court, right? And we are now increasingly seeing in the Supreme Court as well direct appointments of practicing lawyers in the supreme court to judges mm-hmm. and in some senses there is a, another kind of bias at play here because you're not going to interact with your high court judges as frequently as you're going to interact with a lawyer who appears before you every day on a day by day basis so you are practically on, on the same metric you're judging and you have very different material to judge the same person and you know it's it's not just the supreme court because we are also seeing that supreme court lawyers are increasingly filling the ranks of high court uh, high courts as well um, most recently, I mean, there was initial pushback against it, but now I guess people have made peace because they've turned out to be good judges, also. <laughs> so, you know, most recently, I think one practicing lawyer in the Supreme Court has been recommended for appointment to the Orissa High Court, but I don't think this gentleman had much of a practice or has much of a practice. So, in in some sense, right, institutionally, uh, what you're also creating is this kind of unconscious bias. But I want to take the other aspect of the practice, which is how much influence advocates have or senior advocates have. I think Mark Robinson and Mark, sorry, uh, Nick Robinson and Mark Gallanter use the phrase grand advocates, those who influence the Supreme Court's functioning. And theirs is more of a qualitative study, but you've put the numbers to it. So perhaps you could talk to us about what the numbers tell you about the influence of senior lawyers in the court.
2: Right. I mean, just to say that the senior moves the grand Advocates, right? Those that really top of the uh, legal pile, so to speak. The the ones who are household names, you know, the, those lawyers in India, command a fee that is uh, much much more than any lawyer anywhere in the world, right? I mean, on 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 average, that that uh, that group, um, and that speaks to something. Why is it? That people are willing to pay that kind of money for, and we're talking about lakhs uh, of rupees for uh, a few minutes of their time. And why is it that um, that uh, that people are willing to pay that kind of money? I mean, that's that that's the question. And when we asked that question, the one phrase that stuck out for us that was used repeatedly and almost as if you know this clearly seems to be within the uh within the legal profession an absolute accepted thing because everyone said oh but that's the face value of the lawyer right and we we're like this is a, that's a very interesting phase right face value why does a face of a lawyer have value but a face value of a lawyer and so that's what our chapter is called it's called the face value um but um what we were told was that you know um Judges, again, this goes back to the idea that judges have a lot of work. They don't have uh, the time to adequately, um, you know, get into the nitty gritties of the uh, of the issues involved. Um, And uh, this is because obviously this is a self-inflicted problem because they take on so much cases, so many cases. But um, as a result, they have to end up relying on some proxies for um, what might make for a good case that they should take up. And one of the proxies is this face value of a lawyer. If you have a lawyer that uh, is one of these grand advocates or a senior advocate uh, who you see frequently and you've established some kind of a rapport with, uh, you're more likely to Give them a more patient hearing, uh, listen to them, uh, be convinced by them. Not If you don't have enough information, knowledge, or uh, you're not sure to decide more often alongside, I mean, it's the path of least resistance to decide um, alongside them. And, and that is what makes for a face value of, of a senior advocate. So what we did was we studied this question of what is, what is the space value and we relied on the fantastic work that Vidhi has done on this as well. And uh, we found out you, I mean, Vidhi has found out, of course, that uh, um, senior advocates tend to win more of these admission matters as compared to uh, people who are not designated as seniors. Senior advocates, of course, are the people who are designated by the court as seniors or by high courts as seniors. And that allows them, uh, that puts some restrictions on what they can or cannot do in terms of legal practice, but generally allows them to command a higher fee as as well. Um, But it's it's a court stamp of approval to their advocacy, so to speak. Um, so, uh, senior advocates. This study has found that senior advocates are twice as likely to win um, an admission hearing that as compared to um, non-senior uh, advocate. And the reason why this is important is because very often, and this is again a pathology of the system. Very often, the name of the game in Supreme Court litigation is to get notice and stay. Right. Uh, Notice and stay is the idea that your matter is not even admitted. The court has not on the first glance looked at your uh, looked at your file and thrown it out of the courtroom. They have said, "Okay, we're going to do something more with this. So we'll issue notice to the other side to come to us and tell us why we should or should not admit the matter. Right. So that is notice. And stay means that you stay the uh, uh, the uh, lower court's order. Right. Notice and stay is perhaps the most important thing that you want out of a Supreme Court uh, litigation or at least uh, the second most important thing that you want after uh, after winning the case. Actually, why is this important? We found that if you get notice and stay, then even for a case that ultimately the court rejects Um, there's a gap of at least two uh, on average about two years between a notice and stay and the final uh, decision which means that you get to avoid liability for another two years if it's a another party that is poorly resourced you might be able to stretch out their resources to the point where they are willing to give up their claims or bring them to the settlement table so on and so forth so that notice and stay is incredibly important. These proceedings, no, your admission proceedings, take place on um, Mondays and uh, uh, and Fridays. Increasingly, the second stage where you, you should notice the other side has come now bleeds into Tuesdays and Wednesdays when you're supposed to actually hear the cases and not just focus on admitting uh, matters. But the court on average, and again, um, fantastic work by other colleagues who have uh, found that um, On average, the Supreme Court spends about 93 seconds hearing a single uh, uh, SLP, right? So it is making up its mind on uh, these cases on very, very, you know, short bits of time, this the advocacy has to be that extremely persuasive in that small bit of time that the court has to be sort of convinced uh, about its decision. So, ha- so therefore, the face value of the lawyer becomes incredibly important in being able to convince the judge. Uh, or if the judge is not, if the judge happens to not be well prepared, or even if the judge is well prepared and there there's a conflict, they have just so little time to decide these cases that you put a a, a lawyer that the court is likely to trust or who, who has just more persuasive skills that the case will go through. The interesting thing is that we found that on merits, after the matter is in, admitted, there is not any much difference between uh, whether you know, in terms of the win rates of senior advocates and, non, uh, and non-senior advocates when they go against each other, um, which seems to suggest it's not necessarily that Senior advocates are either bringing better cases, or that they are um, arguing more persuasively, and therefore court is likely to be more persuaded by them, um, generally. But that it is using senior advocates as a proxy, or is that is a path of least resistance to admit these these kinds of matters, allowing more weaker cases from senior advocates to come in, um, into the system. Sorry, can I um uh, just uh, I, I I need to put my charger for my left just give me a
0: second. Uh, thank you for that uh, Aparna, I, you know, I'd love to take you from what we have now defined in terms of this conversation as the problematics of the space to what solutions might be um, or what in some ways the data, what, what kinds of uh, keys the data holds uh, to tell us about what where we might go from here. Uh, I know your book in various chapters does talk about, for example, with respect to backlogs and and capacity to deal with cases about having a National Court of Appeals. And I know you touched upon that as well, um, as well as ways in which we might uh, tackle or grapple with the politics of what um, senior advocates versus others might mean. I would love to hear your perspectives. Are there? I, I know that none of these conversations ever lead to sort of silver bullet things, but there are, are there a few things um, that as communities of scholars, uh, we can continue to talk about and unpack a little bit more?
2: Right. I mean, one is to say that, and we acknowledge throughout the book that there is no silver bullet uh, uh, solution. Our solutions are actually quite mild and incremental fundamental with the understanding that uh, for a system that is so important, any kind of systemic shock, you know, some sudden overall is likely to be incredibly disruptive um, in in possibly very bad ways. So, which is why we have not tried to, you know, uh, um offer something that is very drastically different but to see how the current working might be uh, improved um and you know low hanging fruits that 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 could be plucked uh, more easily so um i would Put this uh, in perhaps two or three different buckets. One is just a question of intentionality, right? Being more intentional about what it is that the court is doing. So one thing that we um, see is that you know um, towards the end of like 1970s, early 1980s, the court's coming under a lot of attack for its role during the emergency, for being very inaccessible, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. and a bunch of judges of the Supreme Court very. Um, At least this is what they say later on, right? But seem to very intentionally set about recrafting the role of the Supreme Court in the Indian polity. And that is the court that we see today. The PIL is a product of that uh, system a Greater access to the court through the SLP movement is another part of that uh, model. So it's just wanting to be more relevant to the immediate lives and concerns of the people of India. And uh, it is trying to be a more accessible venue. And all of that is, those are all good things. But one thing that the court doesn't really focus on as much is what it might require it for it to institutionally develop its capacity to meet those goals. And so a large part of what we are saying is to be more intentional about it. How do you design your system? How do you make your the capacity of the court more resilient in ways that will further these goals, right? So that's That is one bulk of things that we're talking about in terms of, you know, what kind of SLP cases should you be taking, what might be, um, uh, you know, small constraints that you might want to put in so that you're not wasting so much of your court time uh, in uh, things that might be be decided otherwise. So to give you an example, uh, the Indian Supreme Court and Indian courts generally uh, have largely rely on oral advocacy uh, and not so much on documentary practices and that's changing a little bit in the last year or so for the constitution benches but um, generally there is there are no sort of predetermined there's, there's very poor court management and case management in um, in cases and so we we're saying you know use skills of court and case management to and and moving towards more documentary practices rather than uh, just focusing on oral advocacy as the main driver of a case, um, and that's that's something that can that can then create space. For um, uh, for uh, uh, taking on uh, and deciding on time, some of the most important questions facing the country. So those are one ca- set of um, sort of concerns. The second set of consta- concerns are administrative. One thing that we find is that uh, so we say in one place that it you know it seems like the it's the administrative tail that is wagging the judicial dog uh, because it's these administrative processes that are really impacting. Judicial outcomes, which should not be the case, right? So, the Chief Justice of India has the ability to um, impact judicial outcomes by deciding, by using their administrative power to decide which judge should be hearing which case, or by listing or not listing a particular matter, so on and so forth. And so, then we say that, you know, um, why not then look at administrative law, which is a whole body and area of law which has come about to precisely constrain state power and make state power accountable to see what might we draw from there and what is it that courts have themselves said that you could draw from there generally in, when, it, when it comes to other administrators outside of the courts and what could we use here from that so we say for example for the master of the roster power that you know have default rules on how judges are to be assigned to say constitution benches have default rules and we realize that the 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 opposition to that is that oh new situations arise and you can never truly really bind uh, this power. And the idea is, yeah, that's that's true, but that's true of all administrative power. Uh, default rules can be subject to override, but for reasons to be recorded in writing. So if your default rule is seniority, the senior most judges will be assigned to the most important cases, um, then follow that norm. If one judge falls ill or has to recuse themselves, then that is the reason why you put in the next senior most judge, right? You don't just pick and choose and say, um, as we find the uh, courts de- the chief justices tend to do you know how do i construct a bench so that i can always always carry the majority with me so that um so so those are kinds of, of administrative um uh rules that uh that, that one could work with but our focus again um just to emphasize is to say that how do you create a system that is robust and that can be resilient Too um, um, uh, uh, resilient in terms of upholding sort of the court's role as an enforcer of of constitutional norms. Because the fear is that many of the pathologies that we've uh, and the problematics that we've discussed today is really limiting the ability of the court um, to carry out that very crucial function of uh, enforcing constitutional norms and constitutional limits, or at least giving it. A cover of deniability um, in terms of not enforcing those those uh, those limits, so that it becomes very difficult to hold the court to account. Uh, we're hearing the court just finished hearing the three seventy matter. Um, four years after uh, after the abrogation, uh, we haven't heard the uh, the court hasn't uh, heard the electoral bonds matter. So it was filed before the twenty nineteen. A general elections. the court itself in this initial orders said that this is one of the most crucial questions about facing our democratic uh, system today. I mean, when the court is itself in an order saying this, what justification is ever possible to say that we're not going to hear those matters. And it's very easy for the court to evade those responsibilities by the, the simple experiment of not setting up a bench, not hearing the matter, and then they can always claim that we are under so much pressure because of so many cases that, you know, it will uh, this will happen in due course. So it's it uh, it's sort of main role, that of the enforcer of constitutional limits, gets sidelined uh, because of these processes. It leaves it open to capture, leaves it open to having other factors and uh, influencing decision, influencing the outcome of uh, disputes rather than um, just sort of, you know, a judicial determination of those questions.
0: Uh, right. Thank you for that, Aparna. I, I have a last question, and maybe this is the burden of the work that I do on a daily basis. But is there a, is there a role for technology to play in mediating the way in which the court Engages with citizens in, in in the sense of the court process itself, uh, or in the way some of the administrative processes are managed, um, and and what might the politics of some of these decisions be? Because I mean, when you very many discussions around uh, the court today are peppered uh, with you know liberal use of words like technology and AI, um, and how might we parse some of all some of what you've said uh, with what technology can do and cannot as well yeah i mean technology can make some things
2: easier to do um i i should i should preface this by saying that there is some level of tech utopianism in conversations around you know technology will set us free and uh, so on and so forth in the court circles um and where the first sort of solution to any problem is let's let's put technology in here. And so everything I'm saying, I should preface with a remark that I found that find that very peculiar um, and also very problematic as a, you know, first that 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 is the first reaction. So with that caveat, some things that um, have happened in the recent past, which have increased scrutiny of courts, I think in a good way, is one is live streaming, um, which has already started conversations in um, within judicial circles and legal circles of, you know, how do you uphold the majesty of the court, um, quote unquote, sorry, I forgot this is a podcast, quote unquote, majesty of the courts, Oh, when, um people can actually see what's happening inside courts, right? Uh, A lot of the majesty of the court comes from its mystique. And uh, you're bringing down that mystique. uh, What happens to, you know, when people realize that judges are just like us, um, and in fact, perhaps a little bit more entitled than the average uh, citizen, uh, how do you, um, uh, how, how might judicial behavior have to change? And already those conversations are happening. So that's already fantastic, right? That, you know, we need to be... Perhaps we can't be as dictatorial, perhaps you can't be as entitled, perhaps you can't be as rude uh, because, you know, mind your language because people are watching and that's fantastic. That's precisely what you want uh, holders of public office to be like. Um, So that's all to the good. Um, Some things that technology can aid, and this goes back just ties into the conversation we started with about um, data and data gathering and therefore more accountability in terms of its working, all that is to the good. Some processes that might otherwise be very cumbersome can be made easier. So there's a lot of, uh, because we have a federated judicial order where, uh, you know, Supreme Court does not have administrative control over high courts. Uh, There is uh, some level of problem with, you know, moving of documents up and down the court system. So all of that can easily be sort of aided through um, through the system. One fear is, that um you know of of algorithmic sort of injustices that might um that might take over so i mean just to give you an example just like of course like like data is not neutral it's political so also of course algorithms are not neutral they are political and i don't need to say this to you uh who is who is more of an expert on this than i am but um you know, how are you assigning, for example, how are you assigning cases to judges, right? You might feed into the algorithm the background of a judge and then say that, you know, depending on what the background of this judge is, uh, you might decide which bench they are going to be, what kind of cases they're going to be allocated. But that might cause all sorts of problems, such as, for example, that um, you might, you tend to have more, you um, government of uh, more prosecutors who are government lawyers and then prosecutors on the criminal side who become uh, who become judges than criminal defense attorneys because criminal defense attorneys then consort with uh, all sorts of folks that might not be I mean they might not pass ID checks as easily. But that means that there might be a bias towards the government in um in your uh, criminal law that gets built in and coded in Uh, and you might say well but this is all algorithmic but behind that algorithm there might be all sorts of problems that that come up similarly I mean again historically women are poorly represented on the criminal side Um, and then if you start allocating cases uh, criminal cases only to people with prior criminal experience it might be that uh, women get excluded from those processes just to give examples of the top of my head of ways in which just algorithms can sort of create a problem where i find the conversation to be particularly dangerous is the idea that um, we should be using ai for research and drafting and decisions um and um all of us again know uh that none of these questions about what is the law on a point what what are the facts are the facts you know um have the facts actually been proved uh how do we understand those facts you know a woman's hymen is torn how do you appreciate that as a fact, right? Is that a fact that is relevant, not relevant? Uh, what does it mean? What does it not mean? Fact is, you know, there's a lot of, uh, there, there's a there's a lot of questions around fact. There's even more questions about law. What is the relevant law? What is not the relevant law? What did the court say in one case? What did the court not say in another case? And I feel the introduction of AI, which gives this kind of false uh, certainty to any of these questions right it is law is a messy business but it is messy for a reason and i mean that messiness is generative messiness so i am just i'm I'm just a little bit uh, concerned about the certainty of mm, algorithmic uh or or uh, tech sort of solutions broadly uh and the attempt to get rid of some of the messiness um yeah so that's my those are my fears about about the use of technology uh, while at the same time acknowledging that there's some value there definitely
0: no i absolutely hear you and i i mean i think to the point we discussed about the political nature of data to the extent that very many of these systems are built on you know, systems that haven't worked very well for a variety yeah. of reasons, uh, very many of them unjust, uh, to think of uh, algorithms as a solution yeah. uh, may be problematic. But I hear you in terms of there might be efficiencies that come, particularly if you're talking about increasing uh, a reliance on documentary forms of evidence. Yeah. Um, yeah, Technology might have a significant role to play in mediating that process and easing it. Um, So uh, absolutely hear you. Aparna, I would love to round out this conversation now and hear from you about where your research goes from now. Um, What are the things you're thinking about and, you know, how would you like to see the community build upon the work that you've already done? Um, Thanks for that. So uh,
2: we're just starting off on a project which uh, um, is funded by the ICSSR and the Swiss National Science Foundation with a few with the development data lab where we're going to now uh, be looking at a bunch of about 80 million odd uh, civil and uh, civil and criminal uh, court judgments from lower courts and analyzing uh, judgments and orders there. And, you know, the bit that I'm working on is um, on criminal justice matters and look at look at that bunch uh, to see, you know, what are the patterns that we're observing and what does that mean uh, for the criminal justice system um, in our uh, country? I mean, it's just kicking off. uh, It's a three year project. So that's where that's the next sort of empirical project that I am on. But also, after having trashed technology so much, I should say that, um, the other bit that I'm excited about is um, looking at Supreme Court judgments. We we hand-coded all these Supreme Court judgments, of course, um, way back in 2016 uh, when we didn't have sort of AI and LLM uh, sort of available to us. But um, now that those tools are there, to see if there is any possibility of um, doing a metadata analysis of court judgments. Um, to see if there are patterns and those patterns, if there are over millions of cases, if they tell us something about um, court judgments. So, I mean, th- those are some of the questions that we are looking at. We might find that though actually we, we can't with certainty say much about these cases and that's the case, that's that's the case. But those are the questions that we are sort of um, me and a bunch of other folks are, are beginning to ask um, and let's see uh, what directions that research leads us in.
0: Hey, we're recording this podcast in Bangalore, which uh, claims it's the tech capital of this country. So <laughs> I think the there's place a to be place, doing for this, the worst place to be doing this. <laughs> <laughs> Hold on that question. Uh, but thank you very much, Aparna. It's been a fantastic conversation. I think... Uh, Uh, We both, Alok and I, and I know, speak for Alok in saying this, we both learned a lot and um, your book was fantastic to read. So I recommend to all of our listeners to go pick up the book. Um, And thank you very much for taking the time to walk us through your work. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me.
1: Thanks. Thanks for being on this podcast, Aparna. And so I think with that, we will bring this particular episode to a close. Thanks to Afra Asif, our production assistant, who has been making all of this happen. And we hope you'll all tune in for further episodes of the Ganatantra podcast. Thank you.